0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The word holiness is off-putting to many people. Try it sometimes and you'll find out. Ask someone what they expect or what they think when they hear the word holy, and you'll get different things. For many, the word smacks of legalism. Maybe they had an adult in their life as children who had really rigorous expectations, and 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 maybe that they associated that with uh, a religion or their religion or with the Christian faith in some way, and you know, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't behave this way, and we, we kind of associate the word holiness with that, and it has this sense of just law and law code and legalistic attitudes, and maybe for other people, it's kind of a different approach, maybe it feels like an unattainable goal, maybe you've had this experience where you know the word holy, and you know God is holy, and God is appropriately holy, and God's not like us, and so holiness isn't really a category for human beings, that's descriptive of God, but not us. Whatever comes to mind when you think about holiness, whether it's legalism or just what describes God, and, or maybe you think something else, whatever comes to mind, most people, not all, but many people, many Christians, do not have the word holy or holiness as a controlling category for their own lives. Here's what I mean. Most of us, don't go through our daily lives thinking about the commandments in Scripture to be holy. Most of us don't think, you know, when I make decisions today, or when I engage in relationships, or when I talk to my coworkers, or when I engage with my children, the thing that God wants from me is holiness. Like how many of us actually cognitively, explicitly think in those categories? I get up, Monday morning, holiness. Get up, Tuesday morning, the Lord Jesus expects holiness. I think most of us are not expressly thinking in those categories. If you are, then you're probably in the minority. In my experience, pastorally, that's not where most people live. We have other controlling categories, but not that one. The problem is, Scripture consistently, from cover to cover, calls God's people to a life marked by holiness. Like this happens again and again and again. We've talked about it before. Maybe some of the passages come to mind for you. One of the most crucial passages is when God first calls a people to himself. We go to this one regularly because it's so fundamental in understanding the purposes of God for his people. Exodus 19, God delivers the Israelite, the Hebrew people, to Mount Sinai. He gives them his covenant, and one of the first things he says to them is, I want you to be holy. You're going to be a holy nation, holy people for me. That gets fleshed out for different groups of people and for the people as a whole. Leviticus 19, God says, here's what that looks like. I want you to be holy because I'm holy, and he just charts out all these things, and it goes on, and that's just one example, but there are are a number of the prophets in the Old Testament chastise Israel because they don't embody the holiness that they're called to embody. And you might say, preacher, that's all Old Testament. You know, we're in the New Testament. Sure, God wanted holiness when the law was the big thing in the Old Testament and there were all these expectations and the people of God were there and there's a temple and they're in their land and that's Old Testament and surely you don't expect us to think in terms of holiness now. Except that the New Testament is filled with these commands as well. Ephesians 5 insists that Jesus died. I mean, this is the reason he came, according to Ephesians 5. Jesus died to take the church and make her holy, spotless, like a bride's dress on her wedding day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is God's will for you. Wow! I'd really love to know God's will for me, Paul. What is it? This is God's will for you. Your holiness—that you should have a sanctified life. Wait a second! Oh, holiness was that Old Testament stuff, and Paul says, "No, no, no. This is God's will for your life." Second Peter. No, excuse me. Yes, second in the letters of Peter. It's he who called you is holy so be holy in all you do. This expectation that the people of God should embody the holiness of God shows up in Peter, it shows up in Paul, it shows up in the Gospels, it shows up all over the place. And yet, it's not a primary controlling category for so many of us. As we come to Mark chapter 7... We discover the Pharisees do not share that problem. (laughs) They have problems. Jesus is going to confront them with their problems, but being consumed by holiness is not one of their problems. They want to, they know they're supposed to be holy and they want to be holy, and they have created a system that they think cultivates and makes them holy. They're ahead of the game in relation to us. Now that may surprise you because we love to criticize the, criticize the pharisees they're the bad guys we're the good guys right <laughs> jesus came for to spread the gospel and they oppose him and we love him and so the pharisees are the bad guys and we're the good guys but in this like they understand it better than we do they understand that god wants his people to embody his holiness they have a different problem but at least they understand it matters We have the problem of thinking that holiness isn't a category for us at all. And Jesus comes to challenge them and to challenge us to rethink the way we think about holiness. Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand that they have missed it with regard to what God wants for their lives in terms of embodying his holy character. And Jesus wants us to understand that this is the primary thing God wants is for us to embody his holy character. So they have one problem. We have the opposite problem. The thing that Jesus wants us all to understand is that holiness is not about what you wash. It's about how you love. Now, if we're going to understand what that means, we've got to take a look at this text where the Pharisees go after the disciples of Jesus for not washing their hands in the dishes the right way. Now, you've probably been told to wash your hands more times than you can imagine in the last few months. They weren't primarily thinking about hygiene, though. and They weren't worried about spreading viruses in the first century. They didn't know about those sorts of things. They were interested in ritual purity. And to understand why the Pharisees wanted Jesus' disciples to wash their hands in the proper manner so that they can be pure and holy and undefiled, We've got to understand a little bit about the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were an unofficial group. They didn't have some sort of official standing like the priests in the temple. They were an unofficial religious organization, but they carried a great deal of influence. I mean, look how prominent they are in the Gospels. These folks, uh, again, like we said, we think of them as the bad guys, but in the ancient world, they were very influential, quite powerful, and people looked up to them for leadership. And one of their primary concerns, it looks like, from texts like this, is for the ritual purity and the holiness of the people of God. And one of the ways they appear, as best we can tell, to express that concern is through these ritual washings. The priests in the temple were largely responsible for washing all kinds of things, themselves and other sacred objects and the pharisees seem to have said well you know what if the priests are holy and the priests are engaging in these washing rituals maybe we can just kind of expand that to the entire nation and we'll wash our hands and our bowls and all these other things in certain ways and that that act that ritual will be a way of saying to god that we care about purity we care about holiness so we'll wash some things, ourselves, some, our hands and our bowls and our dishes and all of these things as a way of telling God we care about holiness and then He'll accept us. Because you see, the Israelites, the Judeans in this passage were still under foreign oppression. They had been for centuries. Occasionally they would take back some autonomy, but by and large, century after century, they were under foreign oppression. And that foreign oppression was interpreted as a sign that God had withdrawn his favor. He had something against them. They weren't, as the prophet said, embodying his holiness. They weren't honoring the covenant. They weren't keeping their end of the covenant. And so 700 years before, 600 years before, God had withdrawn his presence from the temple and they went out of the land. And even when they came back to the land, the presence never came back to the temple. Even when they were in their land and the temple was reconstructed, God's presence never came back to the temple. The priests went back to work. The priests did their job. They offered sacrifices, but the presence of God never came back to the temple. And tyrants would show up, and sometimes they would win some freedom, but more tyrants would show up. And they never consistently lived in the land, in peace, in the presence of God, century after century, even to this point. And so the, the, the idea is there must be, we must not be doing something God wants. And so, like, the priest may be holy, but everybody else needs to be too. And so, y- y'all wash your hands the right way. And maybe God will come back. What they didn't realize is that God was standing right in front of their face talking to them about holiness, and they missed it completely. So they want. Everyone to engage in these rituals, again, not focused on hygiene, but focused on ritual purity. And Jesus has some comments for them. And Remember, these comments are, this is pretty serious stuff, because remember, the Pharisees were very well-respected people. If you were to say to someone in the first century, hey, you've heard about that guy Saul, one of the Pharisees. They might say, yeah, yeah, real upstanding fellow. Really practices what he preaches. Up and coming, really kind of a a rising star in the whole Pharisaic order and in the national life as a whole. So they had a great deal of privilege and respect. Remember, Saul, before he was converted, Paul before he was converted, had authority and privileges and papers that authorized him to go and take Christians and put them in chains and haul them off. Like, that's not a persona non grata. Like, that's somebody who has the right connections. And so Jesus is criticizing people like that in this passage. No wonder he got himself in trouble so much. No wonder people tried to kill him. So what does he say? He says, well, let me go to Isaiah. I was reading some Isaiah this morning in my quiet time, and Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. Hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. And then he goes on, and he just says, look, you're, you're so concerned about holiness, but you've missed the boat entirely. You have no idea what's going on, because if you actually read Moses, if you actually read the holiness code, you'll see that when God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God am holy, the next thing he says is honor your father and mother. But you guys... Always talking about washing your hands the right way and then your mom and your dad are getting older and they need somebody to take care of them and you're in that season of life and it's kind of hard and you'd rather just throw them in a nursing home and not have to worry about them. But really you have to care for them because after all they've taken care of you your entire life and if you're going to honor God you need to honor the people that he has appointed to care for you but instead you don't offer them anything because, hey, all my stuff is reserved for God. Hypocrite hypocrite. You do lip service, but your hearts are far, far, far away. You talk a good game, Jesus says, but your hearts are filthy. He's like, if you really want to understand holiness, if you want to understand purity, if you want to understand what God wants, go to that text that says, be holy as I am holy, and then read the next verse. and then go take care of your mama and your daddy. That's what he says. Don't tell me you love God if you're not taking care of the people around you. Don't tell me you care about purity and holiness and a life that honors God if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. for Jesus holiness is not what you wash it's how you love now Jesus also wants to take opportunity to clarify the problem and he does that beginning in verse 14 with the crowd. So you can see there's kind of a change in scenery. First, he's in this conflict with the Pharisees, and things are getting kind of intense, and he's calling them hypocrites, and anytime somebody calls, maybe you've been in the room and somebody called somebody a hypocrite. It's kind of like if that happens, things just went up a notch, right? So now there's a scene shift. He's not engaging with the Pharisees. In verse 14, he calls the crowd around, and he says, listen to me, all of you, and understand you want to talk about holiness and defilement? You want to talk about holiness and purity? There is nothing in your kitchen that's going to make you unclean. And that is pretty shocking if you're a first century Jew. There's nothing outside the body that coming into the that going in can defile you. The whole point of all those rituals and regulations was to teach you that there is a difference between purity and impurity, holiness and unholiness, Things that defile and things that don't. Like you got to learn. God is holy. His character is consistent. He always does what he ought to do. And all of those regulations, distinguishing between things that are pure and things that are not, are to help you understand that there is a standard. There is a distinction. There there is a holy and there is a profane. Jesus says. There's nothing out there that going, goes into you and can defile you. The things that come out are the things that defile you. The things that come out are the things that make you unclean. Then he leaves the crowd. You think, man, they probably would have, maybe they don't want to hear more, actually. There you know, sometimes you think, yeah, I'd really love to hear what Jesus has to say. Then you read what he actually has to say, and you think, maybe I didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. So he gives the crowd that little tidbit, and then the, the crowd gets smaller Verse 17, he leaves the crowd and he enters a house and, he, and his disciples are with him and they're asking him, they're saying, what, what's going on here? What's this all about? There's nothing outside that can defile. Jesus says, verse 18, do you not also fail to understand? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person outside cannot defile, right? Give him a little lesson on gastronomy here. Like you eat it, you digest it, it goes into your stomach, then it goes into the sewer. Jesus gets real sometimes, he really does, and that's okay, it's right there, it's in the Bible. In doing that, this is why they're so scandalized and shocked, he declares that all foods are clean, right? Because the point of the clean and unclean thing is to teach you there's a difference between clean and unclean. It has more to do with the, real, the object of reality than it does the actual like what's on the table. He declared all foods clean. Verse twenty, he said, "It's what comes out of a person that defiles." So there's this contrast. Everybody thinks if I eat the wrong thing, I'll be defiled. I won't be holy. Jesus says, it, that's not the point. You need to learn that the things that make you unho- the things that defile are already inside. And the whole point of all those commandments." for all those hundreds of years, was to teach you there's a difference. There is holy, there is unholy, God is holy, and you are actually filled with things that are defiling. Then he gives them the bad news. It's what comes out of a person that defiles, verse 20. 21, it is from within. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. From the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride. You're thinking, when is he going to be done? He just keeps going. Pride and folly. He says, all these evil things come from within, and they are the things that defile you. What's going on here? What's Jesus about? What's he after? Jesus understands what all of us must come to understand. Because we need to understand it if we're going to see his beauty to the maximum extent. And the problem Is the problem of sin. Our problem is not external to us primarily. Yes, there are problems in the world, but Jesus wants the disciples to understand that the out-there problems are not the primary problems. The pandemic is not your primary problem. Riots are not the primary problem. They're a problem, but they're not the primary problem. Unrest political conflict senators that cannot get along for the good of the, for the for the greater good Supreme courts people who speed road rage the guy that cuts you off in traffic not your biggest problem may feel like it in the moment when you're you know on the horn or something but not the biggest problem the problem is not outside in fact Jesus won't even let us blame the devil will he Sometimes we do this, we say, "Well, the devil made me do it or the devil's tempting me I just you know and I'm human after all, humans are sinners. we can't. what does Jesus expect from us? Jesus wants us to understand that the devil did not make us do it. Our dirty heart made us do it. When it comes to sin, The problem isn't outside. It's not the way other people treat us. It's not the way other people talk to us. It's not the situation. It's not primarily our context. It's not where we were born. It's not what family we were born into. The problem for us is a matter of our hearts. And Jesus says, all of the darkness that's in there, it's in there. And it's going to come out unless I deal with it. We call it the doctrine of original sin. This is the way it's phrased in the articles of religion in case you haven't read the articles of religion lately. If not, you might want to, because after all, it's what we say we think and believe. But here's what it says. Original sin or birth sin is the corruption of the nature of every man and woman. We'll throw that in there. Everybody that naturally is engendered in the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and of his own nature inclined to evil, and that continually. That's our doctrine. We start with Adam in a place of righteousness. Adam walked with God. He was in a right place with God. But when he told God, I have no interest in your expectations, I will determine who calls the shots in my life. Then he was very far gone, the doctrine says, from original righteousness. And the corruption that he brought into the world impacts everyone. It impacts me, it impacts you, it impacts your children. It impacts everyone. Now, I have found in my pastoral experience, not everyone buys into this original corruption thing. Some people really don't want to Give their assent that we are corrupt from the start, that our posture is broken and that we're rebels. Trouble is, it's a very straightforward reading of Jesus. It's not your circumstances that make you defiled, Jesus says. It's the stuff in your heart. The anger that boils up and you just can't control it. attraction to someone that maybe you acted on when you shouldn't have that desire to speak evil of someone because after all they spoke evil of you that self-inflated ego of pride Jesus says all of none of those things Have your circumstances to blame. The only blame is the heart. And we don't like that. It's striking to me in some ways that people take such offense at this doctrine. Because it seems to me the most obvious thing that there is. I mean, you want to tell me that everyone's not corrupt in some way? Show me someone who isn't corrupt in some way. Find that person. You might think, well, I got this infant baby. They've never done anything wrong. And I want to say, when they tell their first lie, is that something you taught them to do? When they exhibit selfishness and won't let their brothers and sisters play with their toys, (laughs) maybe you did teach them to do that, but those things come from the heart. even the sweetest, cutest little baby comes into the world participating in Adam's corruption. All of us. All of us. All of us. Preachers and parishioners participate in Adam's corruption. John Wesley wouldn't let us get away with anything else. He said in one of his sermons, No man loves God by nature any more than he does a stone. (laughs) You come into this world, you love that rock better than you love Jesus. No man comes into the world, no man loves God by nature any more than he does a stone or the earth he treads upon. What we love, we delight in, but no one has naturally any delight in God. In our natural state, we cannot conceive. How anyone should delight in him. We take no pleasure in him at all. He is utterly tasteless to us. To love God, Wesley says, it is far above, out of our sight. We cannot naturally attain unto it. It is unpopular, but it is true. Watch the news. Pay attention to people. This is our natural state. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to to take us out of our natural state and to give us new life, so that this stuff, like this list, right, and no, like nobody survives the list, okay. When Jesus starts rattling off stuff, you might think, "Well, I never, I never stolen anybody, or I've never cheated on my spouse, or I've never, you know, um, I've never, uh, I've never, I've never done these first few things." And then he, then he gets down to envy. So much for everybody, right? Everybody's envied it. Sl- slander, pride. All of us at one time or another have thought a little more of ourselves than we should have. Folly. <laughs> like that's kind of a catch-all. It's like If you don't tick the box on anything else, Jesus says, folly. You act like a fool sometimes, and that's all there is to it. All these things, Jesus says, come from a person, and they come from within, and they defile a person. And He wants the Pharisees to understand. He wants the disciples to understand. He wants the crowds to understand. He wants us to understand that holiness is not a matter of how you wash the dishes or your hands. It's not a matter of whether you can tick off the boxes, didn't do that today, didn't kill anybody yesterday, you know, all those kinds of things. It is a matter of the heart, and the heart is corrupt, and only Jesus can purify. Only Jesus can do that. Holiness is not how you wash your hands. It's how you love. In the next passage, Jesus goes out of the Holy Land into Gentile territory. He's worn out. He's been working hard. He's been in ministry. He knows what it feels like to be tired. If you ever had a long day at the office, long week, long year at the office, maybe, Jesus understands that. He needs to rest. So he goes. Um, away, and yet we are told he could not escape notice. There's a woman who has a daughter who is possessed by a demon, and an unclean spirit. Comes immediately she, to him after she hears about him, and Jesus's first inclination is, "I'm trying to take a vacation, and after all, I have a very specific vocation to preach the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel, and you're not part of the lost sheep of Israel, so I'm just going to continue with my vacation. Thanks very much." And we think, "Man, what a like. How harsh can he be?" But again. He's got a very specific ministry as the Messiah to the people of Israel. And if he wants to kind of play by the book, she's outside the bounds of that ministry at this point. Now, with his ministry, and as he sends his apostles out to the nations, that's when they come in. But at this point, that global mission hasn't been inaugurated yet, has it? She's persistent, though, isn't she? He begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She's like, hey, I get it. Israel is God's people, his children, and I'm an outsider. But even uh, the dogs get a few scraps from the table from time to time. Can you do something about my kid? And Jesus responds to her. Because you said that, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home. She found the child lying in the bed. What's going on here? Jesus could have rejected her plea and been still completely within the bounds of his mission to the Jews. Out of love, he suspended his mission to care for another human being. He stepped outside the bounds of what he had come to do, preaching the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel, To care for a woman and her child who were in need. To step across a boundary. To step across a border. And to embody what he said is one of the great commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. So even though he's tired, even though he is off the clock, technically even though he's ready for a break and those disciples have zapped him dry. And he's completely justified in going to take time for himself. He chooses to embody perfect love to her. Because you said that, your daughter as well. Brothers and sisters, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ came and died, suffering, bleeding, dying. He came and died and was raised and now reigns. And the reason he did it is to make us holy. He is not interested in mere forgiveness. He doesn't just say, Hey, O'Reilly, your sins are forgiven. Get on with your favorite sins. He says, Your sins are forgiven now. Don't go back. You've been set free. The natural state That's not where you live anymore, Christian. The place where you've got all this stuff in your heart and it just comes out nasty is not the normal Christian life. It's no substitute to do lip service and kind of pretend everything looks nice on the outside. That's the issue with the Pharisees. That's what they've got to learn. But for Jesus, holiness is the controlling category for the Christian life. Through the whole Bible, what do we say when we talk about the people of God? They're supposed to be holy. problem is, they come into this world filthy. And Jesus has got to take them in his nail-scarred hands and wash them. In his blood. To make them white as snow. And that's true for all of us. And when he does friends. When he does. He. Will begin to reproduce his character in us. The character he shows to the outsider. In the next passage. Your daughter as well. The character he shows to his close friends. Who are so far gone from him, even though they're with him, that it's ridiculous. He still teaches them and loves them. And when they flee from him and abandon them, he welcomes them back. He's constantly doing these kinds of things. And that's to remember, friends, that like, holiness doesn't mean what you do doesn't matter. Right? That's not what we need to take from this. He's not telling the Pharisees, hey, you're doing the wrong thing, so what you do doesn't matter. He's saying, hey, you're doing the wrong things because your motivations are wrong. Like your heart hasn't been dealt with. And let me deal with your heart so that you can actually do what you ought to do. And so the invitation is an invitation to allow Jesus to radically reorient all of our lives. Whatever our controlling categories are, however we think of ourselves, however our identity goes, hey, I'm forgiven, that's a really great part of your identity. Is it the chief thing on the ladder of identity of all the Different identities I have. Dad, husband, pastor, teacher, whatever. All of those things. What's at the top of the list? For Jesus, the top of the list is holy. That's what he wants from his people. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Every day. That means we've got to let him diagnose our hearts got to let him identify that those subtle things the things that other people don't see the envy the folly the pride got to let him root them out and replace them with his love and when he does we'll find that we're doing what we ought to do and we'll find that He is at work in our hearts. So I wonder if you can take this time as we pray and offer yourselves to Jesus in holiness. Say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be consumed with doing things and ignore what You want to do in my heart. I want You to do the work in my heart so that I can live a life that amplifies Your love to God and to neighbor. Whether I like them or not. (laughs) Probably most importantly if I don't. Allow that word rightly understood. Holy. Holy. God's holy. He always does right by people. Can he reproduce that in me? The Bible says yes. Grace says yes. Jesus says yes. Yes. The question is, are we willing to open our hearts to Him for the work that He must do to make us into the people He wants us to be? Holiness isn't about how you wash up. It's about how.